Welcome to Free Associations, the Boston from Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who's wondering about whether they can trust that new study they heard about on the news. I'm Matt Fox, professor of epidemiology and global health, and we are here once again in the Boston University Godly Studio. Before we get started, uh, we want to take a second to remind you about Population Health Exchange, the Boston University School of Public Health resource hub for lifelong learning. Find out more, and we've got a new domain name that's easy to remember. It sends www.pophealthex.org. That's pophealthex.org, where you'll find this podcast as well as many other population health learning tools. And I also want to say uh, we have a survey up on pophealthex.org where you can give us some feedback about the show. So to get into it today, in our first segment, our Journal Club segment, we are going to dive into a paper that looks at some of the evidence around whether the flu vaccine for H1N1 can lead to miscarriages, something that you can imagine people get quite concerned about. Also, known, this, also known as swine flu. Also known as swine flu, which I think you've had several times. I, no, just once. Just once. But I did have it. He did have it. He'll tell did, you about didn't that. Didn't you have it back in 1918? In the second part of the podcast, <laughs> oh. our deep dive segment, we'll talk about what happens when researchers divide up their data and try to look at the effects within subsets of the population and how that can go right or wrong. And then in our third segment, our amazing and amusing segment, we'll talk about the things that just made our days a little easier. But before we get into it, let me introduce you to the panel. Don, tell us who you are. I'm Don. Well done. Can you tell us anything else? Uh, professor of Global Health uh, in the School of Public Health. I'm also an infectious disease doctor, just like Chris. And right. Chris, who I'm are you? just like him, and I thought we weren't, we weren't introducing ourselves anymore because yeah. I was getting it's old. It's got to be really no, that boring was, that for was, the people that are listening that was to a, this. That was a suggestion that Don had, and I vetoed it. Okay. Well, hi, I'm Chris, All right, uh, excellent. and I, I'm an infectious disease doctor. All I, right. I feel like an Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay. Well, now you've you've made me want to get rid of this this part of the show. Twelve step program. Okay. A, a, a few issues before we get into it. Um, I do want to remind everyone we are now available on iTunes and all your major podcast sites. Uh, have, I think we fixed the the issue around trying to find us on iTunes. So hopefully you can How find, do you us find us there now. I, you can search for us because before you needed to have the the. Like that band, the the. I remember the the. What about them? Well, you had to have the free associations, otherwise it wouldn't pop up in the. I think if you search the, for free associations podcast, but now the it po- works. anyone, yeah, I'm pretty sure it does. Because huh, I found it with the free associations, all not right. free well, associations, which seems like Boolean logic and all that should have worked fine, but you didn't. Okay. Well, and, and, and actually, when you're there, um, uh, on the iTunes site, give us a, give us a review. Yeah. So I was. That was the next thing I was going to say. Super awesome. Is what Definitely I heard. give us give us a review. Uh, there are only about three reviews up there, and that's me and my mom and perhaps uh, a uh, couple of again. friends. So <laughs> uh, I actually have most of the reviews because I you know I do it on my computer and then I do it on my phone and yeah. So Freebird one two nine. Yeah. Exactly. That's me. Well done, Chris. You found me out. All right. So let's get into it. In segment one, we are going to look at a study that suggests a link between the flu vaccine in pregnant women and miscarriages or spontaneous abortions. And as you said, you can imagine this this is the kind of thing that people get concerned about. Uh, pregnancy is something that uh, people get very concerned about, things that they're exposed to during pregnancy. And so it's something that uh, made a lot of uh, headlines. So this was published in the Journal Vaccine, uh, which is a, a top journal for vaccine-related studies. The lead author is James Donahue, and it is titled Associations of Spontaneous Abortion and Receipt of Inactivated Influenza Vaccine Containing H1N1 PDM09 in 2010-2011 and 2011-2012. 
Uh, so as always, let me give you a couple of the headlines on this one. Researchers find possible connection between flu vaccine and miscarriage, U.S. News and World Report says. Study linking early miscarriages to flu vaccine puzzles, doctors, NBC News says. Uh, link between flu vaccine and miscarriage, question mark. Experts unconvinced, so... Maybe there's some skepticism there. And here was a very specific one. H1N1 vaccine linked to 700% increase in miscarriages. Now, that was in the natural news, so you can imagine they've got a particular bent Was it, was it all bold, underlined with, with exclamation points, too? So basically the Huffington Post. <laughs> Isn't that essentially correct, that, that, that it's, a, it's a, an odds ratio of seven? Yeah, but don't you think it's a little sensational? Don't you think it's a little sensationalized? It's yeah. a little, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um... So, Don, can you uh, give us the overview of what this study is? And in particular, you know, this was a, a study design that we haven't really looked at before. Sure. So give us a little bit of insight into what was different about this one compared to some of the other studies we've, sure. we've looked at. Uh, yeah, absolutely. What I wanted to start out and sort of um, describe the context a little bit. This, this study was looking at a particular vaccine. As we said before, it was the swine flu vaccine, the H1N1 um, vac- um, influenza strain, which... Um, really uh, broke out in 2009, started in Mexico and then went all over the world. And it was, it was really quite concerning because it was a pretty severe um, form of influenza. And while it has been known in the past that getting influenza during pregnancy confers a risk to- Getting influenza, not the, the vaccine. Disease, right, the, the disease. disease confers a risk um, for the pregnant woman. And the it, fetus. And the fetus. It kind of all got amped up during this particular epidemic. Sure, so yeah. those those risks to the fetus and to the mother were substantially greater um, at that point to the to the to the extent of a four and a half, four and a half fold increase in terms of ICU admissions, in terms of um, of death in pregnant women compared to the general population. That is a four hundred fold. That's right. That's <laughs> That's right. Four hundred fifty fold increase. <laughs> Just no, to make the no. point obvious. More sensationalization. <laughs> Um, and so, 400% so, increase there. So um, recognizing the fact that um, all of these risks are substantially increased in the administra- in pregnant women who get this particular disease, there was renewed interest in, in um, getting vaccinated with a vaccine with a vaccine that contained that particular strain of influenza. That is the H1N1 strain of of influenza. Now these same these same authors did a study almost identical to the study that we're going to be discussing today prior to the development of the H1N1 strain of influenza. So they looked at vaccinations in the same way that we're going to describe, and they found no um, no association. So their interest, given the fact that the disease seems to be worse in pregnant women than prior influenza um, outbreaks, they wanted to find out whether, in fact, the vaccine containing this virus actually conferred any particular risk. There was one or two studies that looked at it, but those studies previously didn't look at the first trimester. So this study and is- And why do we care so much about the first trimester? Well, the first trimester is the, is the the period during pregnancy when the the fetus is developing organs and it's really developing. It's the early stage of gestation. We call it organogenesis occurs at that point, and so therefore the fetus is most susceptible to um, untoward effects of drugs or vaccines or or other things. I have all of orga- organogenesis albums. <laughs> um, 
So what did these, what did these researchers do? So what they did was um, they had access to a very large population of people that are part of this VSD or vaccine surveillance directory, I think it is. Yep. And, and essentially all of the people that come to the Kaiser Permanente sites in California and Oregon and Minnesota, I can't remember where all of them were, um, are in their database. So they went into the database and they identified women who had a spontaneous abortion. And the, 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 they then went into the same database and they chose controls that would be associated with um, those women who had spontaneous abortion. And they matched them um, on the last menstrual period. And they did that in part because they wanted to make sure that they were choosing cases um, during the year when those women were at risk of getting vaccinated, i.e. during influenza season. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what they did is they... um, then evaluated amongst the the controls matched for when they actually got pregnant, when the last menstrual period was, how many of them had been vaccinated with this H1N1 vaccine. The controls and the cases? Um, yes, yes, the controls and the cases. Right. So what they, what, they, what they identified were um, 484 cases of spontaneous abortion. They matched that with about 484 um, um, controls, and they did the analysis. And um, they did a logistic regression analysis, and they um, <clears throat> controlled for a whole bunch of covariates that they suspected had so- have something to do with spontaneous abortion, including um, age, um, BMI, um, uh, whether they had more than two spontaneous abortions or smoking during pregnancy. Um, and basically what they found was that um, there was a two-fold increase in the um, number of spontaneous abortions among women who had been vaccinated within the 28 days prior to either when the spontaneous abortion occurred or when the spontaneous ab- abortion... The no, equivalent amount the equivalent. of time in the pregnancy for the matched control. Right, right. Yep. Um, and that was somewhat concerning because um, it wasn't zero. It wasn't a null effect. It was it was a, a potentially real effect. One was it one? It was not one, right? Right. And and that sort of piqued their interest. And what they then did is they then asked the question: Will prior vaccination in um, the uh, in in a prior season have any effect on the possibility of spontaneous abortion. So when they did that sort of sub-analysis and looked at whether these women were vaccinated in the prior year, the effect seemed to increase substantially so that it was 700, 770%, or it was a 7.7. Right. 7 odds ratio, 7.7. Odds, 7. odds ratio. Which, which is a, you know, it's a, a biggish It's a big, number. yeah. It's, it's absolutely quite big. Yeah. This is, is, I mean, uh, to the point where foreshadowing, I could question the believability Right. Of something that is sevenfold. Yeah. But it also was based on relatively small numbers, because when you drill down into the numbers, it, you know, it sounds 485 in each in each group sounds like a lot of a lot of numbers. But the the real analysis is based on discordant pairs, i.e., a contr- a, a case of uh, a woman who had a spontaneous abortion being matched with a woman who did not have a spontaneous abortion, who um, where there was um, discordance in terms of the vaccination status. And those numbers ended up being really quite small. So overall, about a doubling in the risk of spontaneous abortion associated with the vaccine and then possibly something going on with uh, prior, exposure. prior exposure, which really we haven't sort of talked about the explanation for that, but we can kind of get into it. Chris, 
what's your what's your take on the study? Do you do you buy it? Should we should we be concerned at this point, or is this something that you know you've got sort of an explanation for that makes us think maybe this isn't real? Well, this is this is a really uh, tricky question, Matt. And you know, I, we had discussed for some time what you know whether to include this paper in the podcast or not. And we I think I think we all agreed that this was an important one to do um, because it did get so much attention and because the implications are potentially so serious. So, um, you know, you kind of have to remember that ultimately there's, there's two ways you can view the results. One is that the results are correct and that there is a causal association um, between the, the sequential use of vaccines in two consecutive years. Um, and the second one is that it's a fluke. And so what we're trying to do is to... A, a fluke or a, a fluke, bias. A fluke or, yeah, I mean, the, the, results, could be, just the results could be wrong yep. for, for some reason. I shouldn't say necessarily a fluke. The yep. fluke is one of the many reasons why the results could be wrong. It could yep. be result because there's bias sampling, and, and I'm going to talk about it in a second, or it could result just from... Chance. You know, from chance, because you toss a bunch of quarters in the air, toss 50 quarters in the air, chances are low that 10 of, 10 of them are going to land heads, but, uh, you know, or, you know, 50 of them are going to land heads, but it could happen. These things do happen. So random chances AKA is a possibility. And so the let's sort of like talk about the first one for, you know, which is, is there biological plausibility? And so what would be the mechanism by which the use of influenza vaccine in pregnancy would increase the risk of spontaneous abortion? And I, and I want to put that question within a larger context of given that there have been now dozens of studies showing that there is no effect. Of, of of vaccine of vaccine influenza vaccines on causing specific on spontaneous abortion specifically H one N one no okay no, just, just influenza vaccine. vaccines in right. general so and there has been there's been a lot of prior research that suggests right. that there is no, no risk no there's problem no risk and so it would have to be something very specific about the H one N one vaccine because because you recall that a, that a, every year the influenza vaccine you get is a cocktail of of three different strains of influenza virus antigens. And you had said before that it includes the influenza virus. It doesn't. It includes no, that's right. antigens from the influenza virus. There's no whole, there was no live va- uh, influenza in these vaccines. So Got you it. cannot get influenza from these vaccines just to reinforce that. Sort of mashed up. Meme that pops up in the population. It's a whole, it's whole vaccine, but it's. No, 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 but no it's, it's not. Right. It's a subunit vaccine made out of hemagglutinin. Um, it's uh, the. Um, For the H1N1? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a whole vaccine. Oh, that's right. Because that, that, yeah, that uh, particular component. But, yeah, but the other influenza vaccines are. No, they're not either. It's all just subunit antigens. The only one that is a live vaccine is the nasal mist. Okay, so, so, it's, so it's not the whole vaccine. Killed yeah, vaccine, they, they chopped purify, up. They purify and extract out the proteins of interest. Chopped up and mixed right. into a cocktail. It's the hemoglobin. As you say. Right, it's a cocktail. Anyway, so it's, a, it's typically a, in any given year, it would be two strains of A and one of B with being the less spunky, less aggressive form of influenza. And in this, you, you know, in this permutation, there were trivalent and quadrivalent influenza vaccines on What's the market. What's that mean? Which means that they either contain three strains of, of influenza virus or four, of which one of them was going to be H1N1A. So H1N1 is a strain of, of influenza A. So it would either be like three versions of A plus one of B or two versions of A plus one of B. And in either case, one of those A's had to have been H1N1 pandemic strain influenza. Got it. So the question is, is there something biologically unique about this one particular strain of influenza, the H1N1 pandemic strain antigens that would lead to some curious biological effect leading to some inflammatory responses in the placenta leading to spontaneous abortion prior to 20 weeks. And so that that's like the, you know, 
in order for this to be a true association, a causal association, there has to be some biological pathway that would be specific to H1N1. Now, the reason we're so interested in this is because we've never seen this effect before, and now we're wondering, could this in fact be a unique feature of the H1N1 antigens? You know, are, is this an exception to the rule that influenza vaccines are entirely safe in pregnancy? And that's the question what, what everybody got so excited about. Now, it's possible that's true. You know, we, we have to admit that there is a sure. plausibility that maybe there is something unique about it. We just don't know. That we're, this is, we're doing it for the first time, so we can't be sure. With that said, when they did a very similar analysis in the 2009 to 2010 influenza season, which also include influenza A, yep. they found no association whatsoever. So it is in the next year, the 2010 to 11, and the 11 to 12 seasons, where they see this effect emerge. And really, it's it's not... So much in the in the in the the ten to eleven and eleven to twelve data per se, but but rather the effect is concentrated in this subgroup of of, of pregnant women who had received back to back influenza H one N one pandemic strains in either two thousand nine to ten and eleven or eleven to twelve. So either sort of bracketing those two those two periods, mm-hmm. and so it's the back to back association of H one N one where this adverse effect appeared to be most pronounced, and that emerged in what we would call a post hoc analysis, which I think I would love it if you would explain what that is, Matt, and and why we care. Yeah, post hoc analysis would just be an analysis that we didn't plan on ahead of time. So we we didn't think of it, we didn't design our study to answer this particular question. We had data and realized that this is an interesting question that we might want to look at. Uh, Or we just looked at lots of different things and this is the one that came up as interesting. And I think Post-hoc analyses generally get a, a bad rap. You know, we, we tend to think of anything that we didn't think of ahead of time as somehow a negative, a pejorative. And, and there are reasons why we might think that. But at the same time, you know, if you find something interesting in your data, it seems to me you don't want to just ignore that simply because you didn't think of it ahead of time. Right. What I do think you do is you, you, you are more cautious yes. when you find things that you didn't plan on. Yeah, it's a less rigorous standard. Right, because you, you, you and it's you, unexpected for your for your primary analysis. You go to to uh, you, you know you 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 go through a whole series of of of, of gyrations and gymnastics. Gyrations, to, to, gyrations, and well, gymnastics, <laughs> epidemiologic contortions. To uh, that's alliteration. <laughs> it's in the the epidemiologic um, Olympics, I believe. Anyway, uh, you, you, you want to set ri- up your analysis. I do, ri- so I do rhythmic. 10, right? I do rhythmic epidemiology. You, 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 so, you want to get a ten from the Russian. I do. It's not <laughs> so that easy. You, you set up your analysis to control for all the the like the funky crazy things that might happen and might bias and confound you oh, and so well you know said. so that's that's your primary analysis and and almost by definition when you do a, when you're doing a post hoc analysis this is this other stuff that just fortuitously popped up there. And by definition, you didn't go through those gyrations of gymnastics and contortions. And so the, the Greek is giving oh, you a five on this now. one. Yeah. He's like saying, whoa, whoa, bias in routine three, you know? It's 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 much more risky to do this. I agree. And the I interesting agree. thing about this is that in their primary analysis on the, you know, is the association between H1N1 vaccine and, and pregnancy, they didn't really find very much. It was only in the post hoc analysis that things got really interesting. I mean, and they that's did. They sort find of what the, the paper sort of leads with ultimately is the post hoc rather than the primary. Yep. And that's where I think this is like you have to go, whoa, whoa, let's 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 you know kosher salt, not just salt on this one. But you know, it's the first time that I've ever seen salt. I don't know what that means. <laughs> From the Himalayas. <laughs> and you need a huge, not just a grain of it, but like like a chunk. Like mined out of some granite. 
See if we could take that, that, that metaphor one. a little further. <laughs> that, you know, that said, this what? is the first time that I've ever seen the authors actually put in the abstract in parentheses post hoc analysis because they didn't want to believe uh, it either. I, yeah, I've you know, seen I, it occasionally, and, but and I, I agree and with I you. I think that that you know that sort of gives them a little bit of credit I, in, in terms of um, not putting as much weight on the post hoc uh, analysis results as on the main analysis results. So I, I would agree with you. And in fact, I would read this sentence from the discussion, which says, you know, they're, they're sort of going through the previous literature and they say, look, a uh, a previous study that was much larger, uh, Pasternak et al. concluded a cohort study of over 50,000 pregnant women in 20, 2009 to 10 and found no association between spontaneous abortion and monovalent uh, H1N1 vaccine. And then they go on to conclude with this sentence, overall, the weight of evidence in support of safety of influenza vaccine in pregnant women found in the literature is substantial, particularly for women vaccinated after the first trimester. And so what I would, I would say is I think the authors use an appropriate amount of caution. And my take on this is it's interesting. I mean, it, there there could be something there. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. I think it's way too early to conclude that there's anything going on based on the results of, as Chris says, a po- post hoc analysis. Now, there was some, you know, there is some evidence of increased risk associated with the the main finding. The you know the the risk was twofold associated with the the vaccine in the 28 days prior to the to the spontaneous abortion but um but not beyond but not beyond and you could come up with reasons for why that you know may or may not be just a chance finding or bias finding um particularly in in a study that was reasonably small given as don says when you when you start to parse the numbers uh into these pairs but uh and so i think when when studies like this happen it's you know we should pay attention we should do more studies and we should start to look into whether or not there is anything going on here but i yeah. wouldn't based on the results of this one study that goes against the findings of what we have previously seen. Again, there's a slightly more refined hypothesis to, to suddenly jump on the on the bandwagon of there's a problem. And I certainly wouldn't do that. And, I, and I'm not accusing them of doing that at all. I think they have had the appropriate amount of caution. I think the problem becomes that this gets then translated into the into the mainstream media as, as you know, we've got a real problem here, 700-fold increased risk or whatever it is. And I, I think that's just that's just not how, how the science works, and that's not what the science shows here. And I think it's very alarmist. You know, the other thing that I, the other problem that I had with this was that they do, they didn't they didn't report or apparently take into consideration actual disease. You know, it's 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 entirely conceivable that um, that there there's unreported influenza disease yep. in this group of women, and that would need to be controlled for because we know. We know ahead of time that that does confer a risk for spontaneous abortion. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let, let's sort of leap back to to my earlier construct where I'm saying like there's two possibilities. One is that there's that it's true. Okay, yep. we, we the, there's a biological mechanism here that's been previously unidentified. It's unique to H1N1, and now we're finding something brand new. Uh, and it's just mighty peculiar that it only seems to really happen particularly in one year, and not so much in the next. Yep. So whatever it is, it's an ephemeral effect of, of H1N1. Fancy Can't word. really explain that, but you know it's it. You know, maybe it's true. Maybe it's true. Who knows? But then there's the other possibility, which is that it's not right. All right. So what what are the reasons why it could be not right? And, and we've already talked about the inherent, inherent, the unbearable flukiness of data. I, I, right? I read that book. Right. <laughs> that was a good one with a hat. Yep. Yeah. I love it. Anyway, so Daniel Day Lewis was in the movie. Was it? Yeah. He yeah, was. Yeah. That was that was, was great. That was awesome in Prague. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's great. great I book. actually have a story about that. I'll tell you later. Yeah. Well, you should talk about it now. Well, I, I I saw I saw that movie in London, and uh, I I was watching it and in Soho. In Soho, yes. <laughs> I was watching the movie, and Were you alone? Uh, I was. 
I was watching the movie and uh, I didn't realize the movie is so long they have to divide it up and have an intermission. So you thought it was over? I thought it was over and I walked out. I had to go back and see it again. Oops. Did you pay twice? Yes. <laughs> Did you understand it any better after no, you saw the whole thing? No, definitely not. In other words, we, we give this one a 9.9. Yeah. This is a great For movie. anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, the movie is actually called Unbearable okay. Lightness of Being. But anyway. Yeah, uh, something so, like that. Okay, we're off, we're off anyway, topic. So back back to it. So the, 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 the unbearable flukiness of data. Um, so, you know, I mean, we're not supposed to do this and, and I know you, you decry P values, but let's, let's be they honest. They make me angry. They make you hangry, right? If, if, if this, if this post hoc analysis had not shown a significant effect, we would not be talking about it right now. Right. Cause they would be like, well, we did a post hoc analysis and we didn't expect to find anything and we didn't. So let's publish that. No, no one's ever going to publish that paper. Right. That's like, there's no news. We can't publish no news. We yep. looked and we found nothing. Rather they, we looked and by golly, we found something we were totally unexpected. Well, so we're going to publish that. And and when Don, I when I went, on, well, Don, hold on, let me finish. Let me finish. I know he's going to get upset, but I, I'm just saying when I when I went back you. with my little Excel spreadsheet and my feeble spreadsheet. <laughs> oh boy! The <laughs> wheels are coming off the bus. Odds ratios and p values, yeah. and, and also confidence intervals oh. for those who like this. Oh. Uh, and I plugged in. I just like swap a couple of numbers, and all you had to do was is to move two from one category to the other, and the p value is no longer significant. Yeah, and I, so they are so oh, on the Christ, edge, so that. on the edge of like nothing. And yet they published it because it flipped on the other side. I, so I, just be cautious. So that's the flukiness. The second, the second issue, though. Can I take second, issue with the first okay, part yeah, first? Go, go well, ahead, so go I ahead. agree with what you just it said. Is I mean, what it is, but I, I agree with what you just said, and I think it's actually quite important. Uh, everything except for the p-value part. I don't think it matters whether or not it is significant or not significant because there are things in here that are not significant that seem to me worthy of note. It's just sort of how much weight do you put into it. But what's interesting to me is, you know, if you look at these effects, they say, uh, if you look at the 2011-2012 season, they say, well, a tiny bit of increased risk. The real effect was in the previous 2010-2011 season. But if if you were to believe this data, it'd say in the 2011-2012 season, if you were not vaccinated in the 1 to 28 days before, but the 29 to 56 days before, it was incredibly protective against Spontaneous abortion, an adjusted odds ratio of 0.1. Statistically significant, not that I care about those things, but you do, right? So if you care about that. And nobody's commenting about that. Nobody's taking that in any way seriously, nor should they. But that's the same. my same point about the, the fact that they found an increased risk, and they're making a lot about it. Uh, you know, I, Again, they're not overstating it, but the media is. Yeah. I just think you have to you have to be somewhat consistent. You have to pay attention to the, all the data. And what I agree with every the, the thing that I agree with most about what you said was because we're talking about small numbers. If one of those numbers is wrong, in other words, you got the timing wrong on the vaccination on just one pair, it's going to substantially change the 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 size of the effect when you're talking about small numbers. That's just the way it is. Right. And that's why I wouldn't put again that that number, which is very sensationalized. Even if there's a real effect, I don't buy that it's a seven hundred fold increase. Maybe there's a you know, a 20% increase, maybe you know, there's a 30%. I could find that believable. 700 fold. You know, the yeah. other thing, the other thing is that the authors also mm -hmm. describe in, in the methodology, the, the fact that, um, that it was really hard to identify when a spontaneous abortion occurred. Yep. So, you know, that, that, that event could easily go from, from one. You should elaborate on that, Don, because I think the case definition, the control definition is, is, is very precise and, and potentially a little bit misleading. Right, because the the definition of a case in this analysis was a, a mother who had lost had a spontaneous abortion 
less than 28 weeks of gestation based on the LMP, which as you've just pointed out is, is a very, very difficult date to pin down for a variety of reasons. But if you had had a spontaneous abortion- it was 20 weeks. I was going to say, it wasn't 20, 20 weeks. weeks. It was 20, 20 weeks, weeks plus one day. If right. you had a spontaneous abortion, right. excuse me, you lost a child at 20 weeks plus one day, right. it would not be considered to be a spontaneous abortion. It would be considered to be a stillbirth. And so they, that flips on that. And they don't actually claim anywhere that in the 485 controls that all of those were live births. They actually give us no information about that whatsoever. So some so of them we were still births. Some whether there's like what exactly are we comparing here? Are we comparing? Yeah, I mean, yeah. this, this is. I mean, who knows? They just they just don't say, which is puzzling that they wouldn't say what the outcomes of those 485 sure. control births were. Sure. Wouldn't you like to know? I I always want to know. Sure. I right. think that's relevant. I, but I, but but going going back to the the bias, yeah. right? So that another reason beyond flukiness of data about why this may be wrong or misleading has to do with a, 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 a particular bias that is well-known in vaccine case control studies in particular. Called? Called the protopathic bias. I never heard this term before. The protopathic bias. Protopathic. Protopathic bias. Now, people have never heard of this, but you all are familiar with the behavior because yes. we, we hear this, this urban myth constantly, which is, Reverse, I went reverse to causality. CVS to get my flu vaccine, and I got the flu. The vaccine caused me to get the flu. And, and, and that misconception about what the vaccine is doing is, is caused by the mass behavior, the anxiety that is created by influenza season. So like imagine you're in an office setting and you've got all these coworkers who are dropping like flies of the flu. You're like, oh my God, oh my God, I better go get my flu vaccine. So you run down to CVS, you get the flu vaccine, you get flu anyway in 10 days. You're like, oh, ergo the flu vaccine caused the, caused, caused the, the infection. But in fact, what's going on is that you'd already been exposed by your sick coworkers. And so the reason you got you went to get the vaccine is because you've been exposed to influenza and it's now too late. Yep. And so why would this be any different? That this, you know, that, that you know, if that influenza if, is the real cause that, of the spontaneous That influenza is really, this, the really true the cause of, of the be. outbreak. And, and if you thought that might be true, you might wonder, are there particular risk groups who would be more prone, more susceptible to this kind of bias? And I would say one of them would be older women who are obese, who smoke, and who have had prior spontaneous abortions, yeah. who are going to be really attuned to the risk of spontaneous abortion, yep. and particularly likely to have this reaction to influenza season by getting vaccinated. And, oh, and, I, well. and, and I'd like to add one thing that supports that, Chris, because if, if, you, if you look at one of the tables, uh, you can see that the effect that they report is greater in the 2010-2011 season than it was in the 2011-2012 season. Correct. And remember, the 2010 season is one year after the global pandemic of H1N1. Major freakout time, in other words. Yeah. So people were really tweaky. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And it gets better because then the, the like the the feared, you know, zombie apocalypse of, of viral infections is did there, not quite is, materialize. And so people in the next year were less likely to, to get behave vaccinated. this way. Right. They started to revert back to the norm. Have you been vaccinated for zombie apocalypse? Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Four dose series. Yeah. You are, I, I would encourage everyone to go out and get theirs. Yeah. All right. I think we gotta leave it there. Uh, I think I would just conclude by saying I think we we have some skepticism about this one. I, I, for one, would say I'm not, I'm certainly not willing to say that I'm dismissing it so much as I would say I'd need a lot more evidence before I was, I was willing to, I was willing to go down the road of saying this one was causal. So I think, you know, the overwhelming evidence suggests that women should still be getting uh, their flu vaccines during pregnancy. And I don't think this one should convince us in any way that it doesn't. All right. So let's move on to our, our second segment. And in segment two, we're going to talk about something that we call Subgroup analysis. Subgroup just meaning some subset of the population. Uh, and so subgroup analysis is when researchers, in an attempt to try to understand 
better the effects of some particular exposure on some particular outcome. So in this case, the effects of getting the flu vaccine on spontaneous abortion. So we we try to understand that better by looking at whether or not those effects differ within subsets of the population. So, you know, is it is it in the case of the influenza, is it more likely in women who've had previous spontaneous abortions? Is it more protective in women who've had previous uh, spontaneous abortions or women who are uh, obese or or have hypertension or diabetes. And we try and chop up the data to look at the same effect, but within a subset of the population. And this is something that we do intentionally because if we were to find out that actually the, the, the risk, the increased risk is associated with a very small subset of the population, we could then have targeted messages that say, you know, everybody should be getting the flu vaccine except this one little you know, subset of the population. So we want to understand what's really going on. Right. White guys who do podcasts, they, White, they don't need it. Yeah. I suspect we don't need uh, yet another podcast. Yeah, yeah. No, no vaccines. <laughs> they hurt. They do hurt, and there are no vaccines against podcasts, as I far as that. I know. I hate that. I hate. Um, I'm afraid of needles. Yeah. So the problem I think comes in when you start to you start to look at things that you didn't hypothesize ahead of time. So in this, go back to this post hoc question that Chris raised earlier. What is a hawk? Uh, I would before the fact. That's what it means. Before the fact and after the fact. Pre-hawk, post-hoc. See, just wait long enough, Chris will answer his own questions. <laughs> and laugh at his own jokes. And laugh at his own jokes. You know a lot of Latin it's, for some inner study Latin. I'm not actually sure the two of us just, need to be here yeah, for this. I think it's time for us to leave, Just man. reading yep. Asterix Novelix comics. Yeah, well done. Uh, so anyway, the problem comes in, I think, when you start to divide up your data so much that uh, you get these, these, these chance findings, and uh, it, it just becomes difficult to interpret. So... Um, in this study, the H1N1 study, they started dividing their data up into not just what we talked about, which is they divided their data up into uh, previous, you know, whether or not you'd previously been vaccinated or not. They also said, okay, let's look even further and say, let's look at whether or not you've previously been vaccinated or not and how old you are. So they divided them up into whether or not they were above, the women were uh, above age 30, 35 less than 35 or greater than or equal to 35. I was trying to find a way to say greater than or equal to. I said that above 34. And when you do that, uh, that's when they start finding all these crazy, crazy size effects. So if you were previously vaccinated with H1N1 and above age 35, then you have a 22-fold increased risk of spontaneous abortion. Well, when you actually look at that data, that data is based on seven Cases. cases in one control, right? Right. You've divided up the data so much that that in it's order not a group for that anymore, it's it's. I don't know what it is. That uh, doesn't qualify as a group. And the only way to actually get things of the magnitude of twenty two is if you've got another group that has a highly highly protective effect. So that's what you see. So in the uh, in within that substrate of women who were previously vaccinated over age thirty five. They were 22-fold increased risk if they got vaccinated in the 128 days before, but they were uh, 60% less likely to get the attempt spontaneous abortion if they were vaccinated in the 29 to 56 days. It starts to become unbelievable. So yeah. I ask you guys, when you look at subgroup analyses and papers, I'm not even going to ask, you know, are they good? Because I think they have they have their value. But what are the cautions that you would you would uh, take into looking at any subgroup analysis? Don, give me your give me your well, I think the the main one that I would look at is the one that you just pointed out, which is which is really the size of the subgroup and whether whether that subgroup is comprised of um, 
uh, of associated characteristics that are not necessarily part of the subgroup that you're looking at. Yep. So you could you could be in fact etching out a subgroup that is biased because it has an overabundance of a characteristic that is not part of the subgroup definition. Yep. Um, but to me, you know, si- size of the subgroup analysis is is really very important. I think I think size is a really important one. The other one I would say is when you start to divide up the data like this, uh, your ability to control confounding, so those other other things that might explain what's going on in your observational study, uh, it, it just becomes much harder to do because you have less and less data. You have less uh, ability to potentially control that confounding. Chris, what about what about you? Anything that you would urge caution on when it comes to these yeah, subgroups? You know, I'm, I'm reminded uh, of, of, of an experience in the malaria um, control literature a number of years ago where there was a um, this question, how many doses of, of presumptive um, anti-malarials should you give to a pregnant woman during if she lives in a malaria Pres- area? Presumptive, presumptive anti-malarials meaning what? Meaning that, that, that uh, sort of presumptive, intermittent presumptive therapy means that you would give, uh, rather than waiting for a woman to show signs of malaria, you just treat them on a periodic sort of like eradicate all subclinical infections, assuming they're there, even if they don't show symptoms. Just because malaria is bad because malaria for is bad for the baby, the baby, even if mom is fine with yep. malaria. And so they they had the question was: Should you do it like one dose per trimester of Fancidar, or you one dose per month of Fancidar, like a more intensive regimen? And they had done a trial and found that it didn't make any difference. That two doses, like one per trimester, was just as good as once per month, unless the mother had HIV. Mm-hmm. And so the WHO then changed its policy and said, women, you know, HIV positive women should should do this. And it was based on a subgroup of analysis of around, I think, I'm, I'm, it was been a long time since I read the paper, but it was like 30 women. So it was a very, 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 very small group. And subsequently, there were a series of randomized controlled trials based around HIV positive pregnant women, giving them two versus the standard dose of Fancidar, and they basically all showed that it didn't make any difference, mm-hmm. including our study. And so- Your study? Including our study, which uh, found no difference. You had no a dog difference. in this fight. We had a dog in this fight, but it was it was an interesting example of where this subgroup analysis, which as you say, is rife with the potential for bias and confounding, tricky causality, inability to control for confounders, all of that had led to a policy change on a global level, mm. which was subsequently recruited in the next five years by RCTs. So there you go. It's like, you know, caveat emptor. I think the other thing, I think the other thing. Caveat emptor? Yeah. More Latin from Chris. Uh-oh. Define it? Uh, let the buyer beware. Let the buyer beware. I think the other thing that's, that's important to um, think about um, Subgroup analyses is that it can get into a fishing expedition, and the 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 more ways in which you look at the data, analyze the data, trying to find an outcome, eventually, by definition, almost you will find something that is statistically significant. So, not that uh, we care about that. Not that we care about p values at all. No. But what is the difference between a subgroup analysis and data dredging? That's 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 the crux of it. You know, I think that you could you could you could make the argument that it is similar. Yeah, I I, but I I think the way oh, out of sorry. it is to is to is to um, define yeah. the subgroup analysis before you see the results of your primary analysis. That's fair, I think. But if you then develop the hypotheses and dredge the, the the data to find the one specific significant thing that that makes you know makes your grant worthwhile, then I think it's it's not it's not quite fair. I, I yeah, I think what you you just nailed it on that. I think that specifying ahead of time what your hypothesis is about how this effect might differ within strata of other variables uh, is is 
is really smart advice. And I think thinking about this through also helps you design the study so that you can control for the potential confounding that's going to occur when you start to divide up your data. And it also lets you know that maybe you can't answer this question because you don't have enough data. And so I think you're right. I, I think that um, the exceptions to that that I might give are, you know, age and sex are typically two variables that I think probably should go into you know, stratified analysis for most uh, general analyses because we know age and sex drive so much of uh, the differences and effects that we observe. Not that we necessarily want to put too much weight into it, but I think those are two areas where you know it should sort of be considered standard that we look for age and sex specific effects. Um, I I take slightly slightly different uh, opinion on this about the data dredging issue, the idea of the fishing expedition. Um, I don't know. I don't think that we want to ignore things that we find that are interesting just because we didn't think of it ahead of time. What I think we want to do is use a lot of caution, take it with your giant grain of salt when we find something that we didn't specify a priori, but I don't think we want to ignore it. I think it, because I think it's potentially the thing that leads us to the next study that helps us figure out. So this, this, the H1N1, I think if, if, if there was a way to do this so that it didn't get translated into the media hysteria, I think this is interesting information that tells us. Oh yeah, absolutely. Let's I go agree. do a study that actually can answer that was designed to answer this question. So and I don't, I don't fault the authors for doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want appropriate caution so that I, we can then figure it out. And I think that they exercised they the did. appropriate caution no, in the discussion. And they actually, the final, the final sentence in the uh, discussion is a follow-up study funded by CDC is currently underway to evaluate the risk of spontaneous abortion after repeated influenza vaccination during the 2012-13, 2013-14, and 2014-15 influenza season. Results are expected by late 2018. And I think that that will be extremely helpful in figuring out whether this is a fluke or whether this is truth. I agree, and I think that's why uh, we don't want to we don't want to only look at things that we specify a priori, but yeah. we do want to use a lot of caution when we haven't thought of it in advance. Because is isn't the expression "torture the data long enough and it will confess to anything"? That, that, that is one saying. <laughs> although you know, they also say "let the data speak," and then other people will say "data don't speak." You have to speak for it. I don't know. Let me let me let me just get the last word on this by referring users. So there's a nice paper out there um, by Sun and colleagues that was published in uh, I believe it was JAMA in 2014. That's called "How to Use a Subgroup Analysis: A User's Guide to the Medical Literature," and it goes through. And it's it's uh, the second author is is John Ioannidis, one of our we love him uh, favorite our heroes, uh, and and goes through a lot of the reasons why you would potentially want to be cautious about uh, subgroup analysis. So I would refer anyone who's looking for more on the topic to that, uh, that particular paper. All right. So let's move on to our last segment, our amazing and amusing, where we want to look at some of the things that just make us joy our jobs even more. Uh, according to Don, some of the weird, wacky things that go on in our field, but for Chris, those things that just, uh, make I'm going to say happy. make you happy and the rest of us don't understand. So I'm done. I'm going to hand it over to you. What do you got for us? Oh, Matt, I, what I want to do is I want to uh, refer to an article that was published in Slate Magazine in December of 2015 by Meredith Carpenter and Lillian Fritz Leylin, um, entitled Scientists' Silly, Dark, and Sometimes Inappropriate Humor. Written by Don Thea. Yeah, could have been. Uh, no, I really, really enjoyed this article, and, and they go through um, a number of um, titles that scientists have put oh. in their paper in an attempt to draw levity or to um, to, to 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 be funny, and I, I just want to list a couple of All these right, titles. Give us, give us a few. 
So one is, and I have not read these papers, but uh, based on these titles, I'm just going to run out and get them. Yep. A rose is a rose is a rose is a rose, but exactly what is gastric adenocarcinoma? <laughs> <laughs> You probably think this paper's about you. Narcissist's perception of their personality and reputation. I love it. Here's egg in your eye. A prospective study of blunt ocular trauma resulting from thrown eggs. Okay. Yep. That's a study that needed to be done. Um, Role of childhood aerobic fitness in successful street crossing. Oh, wow. That's important. What did they find? uh, I actually have this paper. I'm going to, I'm going to, speedy, I'm speedy gonna kids. introduce so they do better segment. or as opposed to the slow moving kids. Um, right. And then reverse causality. I don't, I don't. My favorite one is from urethra with shove. What? Bla- bladder foreign bodies, a case report. Every no, few. that's not a thing. <laughs> yep. That's not a thing. Yep. Oh, I don't want to read that stuff. And then the last one is children <laughs> and mini magnets and almost fatal attraction. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, mini magnets are a killer. What's I a know. mini magnet? Wait, what's a mini magnet? They, they get little, little swallowed balls. and put up your nose, and they can be very dangerous. They're dangerous, especially you if you eat two of them. Like if you, you know, the little bag, magnet like statues that you make out of little magnetic balls. Yeah. If you swallow a couple of those, particularly if they're not like you don't swallow them at the same time, but if you like swallow one and then another one an hour later, it can be fatal because what happens is the two magnets attract each other through the intestinal wall. You've got to be kidding I'm me. I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely serious. And when they do that, they pinch and, and infarct the wall, drill a hole through both sides of segments. Of the intestine. It's serious. It's, it's a it's a it's a common problem. Pediatric. Common. It's a, yeah. It's a, it's a fatal attraction. It's a we're fatal attraction. To, we're gonna have to read that paper. <laughs> yeah, All it's right. very dangerous. There you go. Well, that's uh, those are some good ones. I like that. Yeah, that's really good. All right, Chris, what do you got? And Who does it is, have to do with bats? It does not. This this is a, this is about parasitic fungi. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> Hold on. Let me get comfortable. <laughs> No, I'm going to be brief on this one, but but it is it is it is Halloween and the fairy folk fly or ride or whatever they do, you know. What? And when you hear the, the the bridal ring at midnight, this is when the the cordyceps the cordyceps unilateral laterals. Word salad. I, I don't understand what he's talking. <laughs> he about. Wait, wait a minute. What was the pro, proto something BS? <laughs> what was the thing from your previous oh, weird wacky? Yeah. What was it? It was. I can't remember. Yeah, that Something sounds like exactly what you just did. Protobiome. A whole bunch of fancy words put together that <laughs> right. don't mean anything. <laughs> right. I, guilty. Go ahead. <laughs> I'll take it. All right. Um, anyways, it's, the, it's 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 Halloween, and we got to think about like creepy ghoulish things. And I'm thinking about about zombies today. And there there is this this awesome fungus called Cordyceps unilateral unilateralis, which infects various insects and spiders. And um, as part of its routine life cycle. So like in the case of- This is of, a fungus? This is a fungus. Among us. And so the fungus- Fungus among us. Eat, it, like if you're, if, if in the species that, that infect ants, the ants typically eat the fungus and then it, then it germinates inside the ant and it completely consumes the exoskeleton. Correct. Uh, the, like and alien. The, endo, the endoskeleton, not the, ex- the exoskeleton is left to right. It's like alien. Um, and, 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 but it also induces the ant to adopt a behavior that favors the fungus. So it like the infected ant will then like have this uncontrollable urge to crawl to the underside of a leaf and then cling there as it dies. And then the fungus will completely fill the exoskeleton and eventually burrow through and release its fruiting bodies like arms or horns coming out of it, which then release the spores. And so the idea is the ant is sort of like this food source for making fungus spores. And then then the wind comes through and like blows them off to find more ants. And it also does it with spiders. And Donna's looking at the picture here. This this is a hand-sized tarantula that has been completely consumed by cordyceps. It's growing roots upward. 
Yeah, yeah, and and you know, there's a there's a there's a science fiction novel out these days called I'm called, throw up. called something called uh, The Last of Us about a, a, a variety of this cordyceps fungus that like figures out how to do it to humans. Oh, <laughs> except it doesn't kill them; they just make then turns them into like fungus zombies. They shuffle around and infect you. And so it's a it's this would be like a fungus that invades humans and. Eats us from the inside out and yeah. then forces us to stare at our cell phones. Yeah, it's happened already. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Oh, You're right. I got it. We don't have to wait for the zombie wow, apocalypse. It's, here. it's happened. Oh boy. <laughs> All right. All right. So there you go. Fungus. Among us. Among us. All right. It's not happening between your toes, is it? Oh, oh I don't want to know different. about it. All right. So um, mine, uh, I went to uh, a. So, okay. So. We are researchers. We have to go out and do research, or research and then write up our findings and submit them to journals to get them published. Yep, that's what we do. And the anxiety that comes along with submit, right? You know, you write up your paper and you submit it to the journal and then you wait. Because they don't know how great it is. And they don't know. And you wait and you wait and you wait. And is you this just the kind hope. of anxiety beyond the anxiety that you have when you write an abstract? Oh, I have anxieties, uh, so yeah. many anxieties. Next, next time I'll tell you about another anxiety I have about... Writing the the thing I love about this job is it makes me so anxious. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that great? Yeah. So the problem is, so you submit it to this journal, and then they have total control, and you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if you're going to get back the revise and resubmit. You don't know if you're going to get back the sorry, our volumes are too high to publish your paper right now. Which we, we loved know it, but what really means is we hated your paper. Right. Um, just not into you. Just just not that into you. <laughs> it's like that movie. So there is a solution to this problem, which is. The Journal of Universal Rejection. (laughs) You submit your paper and you know what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. The Journal of Universal Rejection. (laughs) Let me tell you about the journal. The founding principle of the Journal of Universal Rejection is rejection. (laughs) Universal rejection. That is to say all submissions, regardless of quality, will be rejected. Despite that apparent drawback, here are a number of reasons you should choose to submit to the journal of universal rejection. You can send your manuscript here without suffering waves of anxiety regarding the eventual fate of your submission. You know with 100% certainty that it will not be accepted for publication. There are no page fees. You may claim to have submitted to the most prestigious journal in the world judged by the acceptance rate. It is one of a kind. Merely submitting work to it can be considered a badge of honor. You retain complete rights to your work and are free to resubmit to other journals even before our review process is complete. And last but not least, decisions are often, though not always, rendered within hours of submission. <laughs> wow. Do they use peer review? I'm going to guess they not. don't have to. Wow. That no, right. so you, don't have to, you don't have to worry about rewriting no the paper. No anxiety. Right. You know what's going to happen. To, this, this, is like, this is like a flashback to trying to get a girlfriend when I was in middle school. The, the <laughs> Turtle of Universal Rejection. Oh. <laughs> And that's the episode where Chris admitted too much. I was very anxious about this. Oh, boy. All right. Well, that's the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at PopHealthyX or you can tweet me at ProfMattFox or Chris at IDDocCGill. At IDDocGill. That's what I said. IDDocCGill. Oh, 
I added in a C. Is that what I did? Yeah, ID, ID Doc, Doc Gill. Gil. Sorry yeah, about Dr. that. Dr. Gill. ID Dr. Gill. Uh, you can tweet Don, but his uh, account's been shut down due to apparently his harassment <laughs> of somebody. So hopefully I'll have that for you next time. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. Uh, we want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at Boston University School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you download the next episode. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Bye.